Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're talking about it in relationship to Second Corinthians, which we just started. We finished the series on First Corinthians, and that is up at our website at preparingyou.com, and uh, we're also going to expand more websites where you can get this. You can also find it uh, looking for podcasts at uh, Keys of the Kingdom. Also at keysofthekingdom.info and at hisholychurch.org, although we don't have all the recordings up there. They're all interlinked. There are a lot of different people working on this. And uh, hopefully what people will eventually realize is that Christ had a different way. He didn't start Christianity. He started something. He didn't actually even start it. But he revitalized something that was called the way. And that's what Christianity was called, the way. It was different than the way of the world, but it was in the world. It was just not of the world. And it operated much differently than the world, which was really a good thing because the world was about to come to an end. And it did come to an end, or at least virtually came to an end, with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Millions of people lost their lives. Crops failed. There was global warming at first, and then there was global cooling, and then uh, systems of uh, moving vast amounts of food around and grain and everything began to fall apart. There were fires, there was mayhem, and uh, the Christians did pretty good. They not only survived, but thrived. And so then Christianity had this foothold, even though only about 5% of the people of Roman Empire became Christians. They altered the course of history because they allowed tens of thousands of people to survive what was absolute, utter mayhem because they had learned to live a different way. Unfortunately, most of the modern Christians today do not live that way. They have been kept from the gospel. Many of them have become actual workers of iniquity, all of which was prophesied. And so the question is, what should you be doing? Well, that's what we're covering in that series. We're showing you the context of Corinthians in the gospel of Christ, the context of Corinthians from the point of view of Corinthians, what the Corinthians were doing, what the early church was doing, what Paul was doing, what these different words meant at the time Paul was writing them down. And we're painting a decidedly different picture than what you would get in your local church on the corner. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't like what we say. But that's because we're not in the ear-tickling business. We're in the truth business, and the truth sometimes hurts. As a matter of fact, the whole truth almost always hurts somebody somewhere. At least brings pain. But with pain comes gain. No pain, no gain. That's the way it works. You have to pit the truth against your reality. And if your reality doesn't hold up to the truth, then you need to alter your reality, which is what repentance is all about, changing of the mind. And we're just kind of showing you, oh, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. And hopefully in the process, you'll figure out what it is. So I was going to talk a lot this morning as we started on 2 Corinthians, and we pointed out in 2 Corinthians, it's much shorter than 1 Corinthians. Uh, he does a lot. He's light, what he calls lighter in it. It's kind of Paul light, we might say. <laughs> 
because in his previous Corinthian, he was pretty heavy, heavy-handed, hard on the people, rebuking them. But he, he basically said, uh, as many as I love, I also rebuke. Because if you don't tell somebody where they're going wrong, you don't really love them. You, you need to speak up when you see somebody headed for a cliff or a precipice or a destruction. And that, of course, is what we're doing. A lot of people don't want to hear that. They want to think everything's okay, and it's not. But they'll just have to figure out as time goes on. Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to find out when it's too late to do much about it. I would recommend that you pay close attention to what we have to say about Corinthians. We have uh, we have a bunch of recordings up. Uh, I say a bunch, uh, a plethora of recordings uh, lots of recordings, hundreds of hours of recordings on lots of different subjects, and we're trying to categorize them so that you can go. If you have a question about this verse or a question about that verse, you can go to it. We're going through the whole Bible, one chapter, one verse at a time. Hopefully we'll get going with uh, more YouTube videos. We have YouTube videos up. If you want to know more, go to hisholychurch.org or preparingyou.com. Uh, either one will have a plethora of information. and But if you really want to get to know what's going on, join the Living Network, which is right now, for you to join would be just to join an email group that is co-relative to the geographical area that you live in, and then start forming congregations of 10, and uh, or joining the existing congregations of 10, if you get 10, 15, 20 people in a congregation, then you will uh, shift to two different congregations because we keep, generally speaking, 10, but we link them all together, which is why we call it a network. And, of course, that's what Christ was forming as a network. And he commanded that we do that. He actually, he is the only place he really commanded people, and he commanded his disciples to make the people sit down in a network based on 10s, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And that way they organized themselves so that they could take care of one another when there was hard times. Because when there's really hard times, you don't want to depend upon the governments of the world. Because they're not in the business of love. They're in the business of force. Uh, despite what they may say, they're not really public servants. They expect to serve the, the public to serve what they want. And the more they promise you, Liberty from responsibilities, the more you will go into bondage. And, of course, that's pretty much where it is. Everybody's back in the bondage of Egypt again. Bondage of Egypt, you only owe 20% income tax total. 20%, no more than 20% income tax. 20% of your labor belonged to the government, and the rest of it belonged to you. Well, that changed over a period of time, but that was still the law before the Muslim Brotherhood took over and ran Mubarak out. It was 10... uh 20% income tax was the most you'd have to pay no matter how much you made. And that was just the way it was. It's been that way for thousands of years. That's changing because we're changing and we're getting, we're going deeper. It's going to be worse with us. And just as the Roman Empire fell, when we fall, it will we will fall harder. So anyway, what I also pointed out this morning in, in Corinthians, not only was it shorter it mentioned the word love more than any other place in the Bible per words, per paragraph, per sentences. It brought up the term of love. A lot of times it's not translated love, it's translated charity. Whenever Paul says the word that Jesus used for love, they often translate it charity. 
And it has to do not just with giving stuff away, but giving stuff away that makes people stronger. If you just give your kids everything they want, you're going to raise up spoiled, lazy, uh, you know, not very well-behaved children. <laughs> they will be, it will be a bad sign. And they will lose, when, when you die, whatever they inherit, they will lose it all because they haven't learned the values that you should be imparting to them. So charity without imparting to people value. I just saw a video today that uh, billions of dollars in food stamps goes to buying people candy and pop, you know, a sugar-filled pop and even uh, aspartame-filled pop because some people buy diet pop, which are all not for your health, yet it's part of what they call the SNAP program, which is supposed to be about nutrition. Those, Those things aren't nutritional. They could change all that easily. It's just entering a few things into an existing database. You know, they already can't buy cigarettes because that's not healthy for you. And tobacco, that's not healthy for you. They can't buy alcohol with it. And all you do is add a few more items that are clearly not health items because people on food stamps buy more of those than people not on food stamps per dollar spend. So, and diabetes and obesity is one of the biggest problems in the United States for health. So, for the government be financing a poor diet is a bad idea. But that's what they're doing. They tried to change that, but too many people who happened to be, you know, one one guy was a congressman from Georgia, I believe it was. And he was the one that was worried about Guam tipping over because there were so many troops on it. And it's only an island. So if you get that many troops on it, could could that island tip over? I mean, the guy is literally brain dead, but he gets elected because zombies always vote for zombies. <laughs> but anyway, he happens to be where the headquarters of Coca-Cola is, and they don't want to lose a billion dollars worth of business. They wouldn't lose it, but they would lose some business, certainly, because people would not be buying pop on, with food stamps. And if, if the government really cared about these people, they would implement that because they know these people. And people say, well, we don't have a right to tell them what to eat. Well, you do if you're buying it. You know, a bum stops me on the street and says he needs money for food. I say, well, let's go to the restaurant. I'll buy you a meal. Let's go to the grocery store. I'll buy you some food. They don't want to go. Why? Because they don't want to buy food. They want to buy booze. I don't want to give them booze. I give them a $100 bill. I could kill the guy. So you have to give charity that strengthens the poor. That was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that in a time of affluence they did not strengthen the poor. They they gave to the poor, but they did not strengthen them. Anyway, we talked a lot about that this morning and you know and previously in Corinthians, because Paul was saying that if you uh if you give everything you have to the poor but have not charity, then you have nothing. Well, how could you give everything to the poor and not have charity? Isn't that charity? Well, it's because you're not giving to them what they really need. And what a lot of people really need is the truth. And so that's what we're about. So, Second Corinthians talks about love. There's lots of different kinds of love. As a matter of fact, there are several different words translated love in the Bible. One is agape, or agapio, depending on if it's a verb or not. But there's another one, philia. Well, philia appears once in Corinthians, and only in First Corinthians, and we re- talked about that this morning. But I thought we would talk... You know, when we do Keys of the Kingdom uh, on our Saturday morning broadcast, we will continue with Second Corinthians. We're already in Second Second Corinthians chapter two. It's a shorter chapter, so we'll get through it rather quick. But I'm I thought I would talk today about love. 
Well, that sounds pretty boring, but it might not be as boring as you think. So, <laughs> so I, I thought about it, and you know, and there was a question that was brought up once in a movie. I, I like the movie Sense and Sensibility, and it's is love a fancy or a feeling? Now, that's not really in the book because that she was quoting a poem that was written by uh, see, it was Hartley Car- uh, Coleridge, which is the son of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And uh, that poem wasn't written for, I don't know, 40, 50 years <laughs> at the time Sense and Sensibility was written. But yeah, we'll get into the poem. But let's, So we have this idea of a fancy, is love a fancy or a feeling? And, you know, when I fr- first heard that question, I thought like, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out the answer. Well, in the movie, they actually answer it. Although, in the book, it didn't even come up in that context. But in the movie, they answered it, but they acted like they didn't answer it. But the poem tells you. And she was reading the poem, but she was a little bit of an airhead, or played the part of an airhead. Kate Winslet played the part. So, but I don't know, the authors didn't get it. He told you in the very next line after, (laughs) the very next word after that question. But a lot of people missed that. And I I was on Quora, and Quora had asked that question. And people were trying to answer, but none of them seemed to catch that the poem, some of them caught it that was from the poem, but the poem answers it. So, anyway, we're going to look at that, maybe some other poems, but we're going to correlate it to why you're not free (laughs) as a nation, as a people today. And if you figure out what I'm really going to be talking about, the dark side of love, maybe you'll figure out what you need to do. And, of course, uh, like I said, what you really need to do is join the network and start gathering with other people who are trying to find out what you need to do. And you figure it out. I'm not going to tell you everything, but I'm going to tell you a lot of truth here. So, anyway, the word fantasy, if you go back uh, to the mid-1500s, it was an inclination, a liking, a contraction of the word fantasy. Uh, What I actually, I think I may have said that wrong. The word fancy was a... contraction of the word fantasy because it had to do with your inclination and what you like it took uh, a older or longer word sense of inclination whim desire etc as a verb it was uh, take a liking to you take a fancy to somebody a contraction again of the uh, fantasizing and as i said it was from a poem by hartley coleridge which is sonnet seven i think it was but as I remember, it starts out, is love a fancy or a feeling? Question mark. Next word in that same line. This is a sonnet, so certain lines will rhyme and certain lines will not. There's a number of different patterns. But the answer was no. So, it, 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 did you do this or did you do that? No, I didn't do either one. It's not either one. It's not a fancy or a feeling. He goes on to say it is immortal as immaculate truth. Well, immaculate truth, that would be perfect truth. That would be the whole truth that Patrick Henry talked about. You want to know the truth, but you don't want to just know the truth. Because in most lies, there is at least some truth. You want to know the whole truth, absent of all lies and deception. Real love is as immortal as perfect truth. Immaculate truth. Tis not a blossom shed as soon as youth. 
Now, he's trying to rhyme here, but he's telling you something. And I'll tell you something why I'm bringing up poetry. Because I have poetry in the book Covenants of the Gods. It's a very serious book about the contractual nature of government. But I have poetry in there. I have quotes. I have prose. And I go back and forth between my written words and prose and written words and poetry. And and the reason I go back is you, you don't know it. Most of you don't know it. Men do this regularly. Women do it also. But women's left and right hemisphere is better connected than men. But when you read poetry, you read it with one side of your brain. One side of your brain becomes more active than the other. When you just read regular written word, you know, like instructions, you read that with, you read that with the other side of your brain. So if I'm presenting you instructions and poetry back and forth, I'm stimulating the right side, then I'm stimulating the left side, and I'm stimulating the right side. <laughs> and that's actually having a physical effect on your mind. And, you know, wh- why is that important? Well, I'll let you figure that out because we got to keep moving here. But he goes in the poem and he says, drops, for, so it's not like the, you know, the, the love infatuation and fancy of young kids who hormones are driving them to this total, I, I just can't live without her, I have to be with her, she has to be with me, I need her, I need her, I need her. It's not that kind of love. That kind of love will blossom and be shed with youth, you know. <laughs> we still love her when she's an old woman. Maybe, maybe not. But it won't be the same kind of love by that time. He says, drops from the stem of life for it will grow. You know, that youth drops from the stem of life for it will grow. It will grow even though youth fades. The love that he's talking about, that immortal, immaculate truth kind of love. It will even grow in barren regions where no waters flows, nor rays of promise cheats the pensive gloom. Rays of promise, the sunlight. It will even grow in the dark. Darkling fire, faint hovering over the tomb. So what? what's he talking about? This uh, darkling fire, fainting hovering over the tomb. That but itself and darkness not doth show. So this love is not subject to bad times, hard times, dark times. It grows even in dark times. It even grows when life is fading. It's a different kind of love. It's not a love where you are taking life from others. It's it's a love that could grow even in darkness and hard times. Nor will it change, though all be changed besides. Though fairest beauty be no longer fair. In other words, that youth loses their beauty, the love is still there. It's not dependent upon your lust, your desire, your wants. It's a different kind of love that he's talking about. It's not that fancy love, that that flirtatious love. Though vows be false and faith itself deny, though sharp enjoyment be a suicide and hope a specter in a ruin bare. And hope a specter in a ruin bare. Even when all is lost, the hope in that true love still exists. But that true love is not that sharp enjoyment, you know, that 
orgasmic uh, uh, stimulation of what we think of as love and passion. That's a suicide. That actually takes the life away. And there's another poem I thought I'd bring up real quick. I think we'll have enough time to do it. Yeah. Uh, it's Listen by Ogden Nash. It was a favorite poem of mine when I was a little kid. And there are certain similarities in this poem. Written completely different. Uh, using a lot of different terms. But you'll see an overlapping because there's certain principles involved. These people were contemplating what is real love. You know, it's not infatuation, it's not fancy, it's not just a feeling, it's not just hormones, it's something else that survives even darkest times. But anyway, he he talks about, listen, that's the name of the poem, listen. There is a knocking in the skull, an endless silent shout of something beating on a wall and crying, let me out. Ogden Ash is a little bit more, you know, he's a very funny poet a lot of times, but this is a serious poet poem, but he still has this light-hearted way of of presenting the message. Remember, words are the symbols of ideas. We talked about that this morning. That's, you know, Samuel Johnson said that. And I can mention words, and they will bring up different symbols to you. Poetry tries to get beyond that. And it, it's because it's not dealing with the mathematical side of your brain. It's dealing with the more creative side of your brain because it's making you think outside of the box of normal sentence structure and normal word means. And this is what the rhyming brings it in. There's something more going on in poetry than there's going on in regular written instructions. That solitary prisoner will never hear reply, nor no comrade in eternity can hear the frantic cry. No heart can share the terror that haunts his monstrous dark. See the reference to dark again. This this individual in the skull crying, you know, let me out, wants to be set free. But it's in this darkness, this monstrous dark. The light that filters through the chink no other eye can mark. Remember what, what Caldridge was talking about? No rays of promise cheats the pensive gloom. Darkling fire, faint hovering o'er the tomb. He's he's talking about the same thing, that there's something that is beyond, you know, the pleasures of the world and the, the light and the warmth of the light that lives in this darkness and it's it's desiring life. It has this hope of life. And Ogden Nash is writing about the same thing. He says, When flesh is linked with eager flesh and words run warm and full, I think that he is loneliest then, the captive in the skull. Remember Caldridge talking, Though sharp enjoyment be a suicide. And Nash is saying it's bringing this most lonely state. When you go to church and they're tickling your ears... And they're offering you this enjoyment of church and the right kind of music and the right kind of atmosphere and the big sound system. It's suicide to that captive in the skull that's crying, let me out, that wants to be free in spite of the darkness of the world. Caught in a mesh of living veins, that's you, in cell of padded bone. He loneliest is when he pretends that he is not alone. You are no more unsaved than when you think you have saved yourself with a thought. 
You have to get out of this captive state in the skull and let somebody else in there. Let a light that does not come from the world, from the flesh or the, from the devil, into your heart. And then we're going to talk about how to do that. But anyway, he says, um, again, that's part of that, is love a fancy or a feeling? He, he's talking about, it's not the feeling. The feeling actually takes you away, distracts you. It's fake love. Thieves and robbers do it. The mafia, they love, they have the filio love of the Greeks, the feeling love. Not that that's bad, but that in itself is not enough. He goes on to say, what freed the incarcerate race of man, because that's really what he's talking about. That such a doom endures, could only you unlock my skull and, or I creep into yours. In other words, I have to, this same proverbial symbol of walk a mile in another man's boots. Feel his pain. Feel and understand what's going on with him. So they're both talking about the same thing in a completely different way, both using poetry and symbols of words, but because it's poetry, the words are jumbled up a bit, and uh, there's this rhyming, metered poem, and they're trying to impart a message to you. Unfortunately, in Sense and Sensibility, the message was there, but I think the authors kind of missed it because they went and pulled Caldridge's poem from much later and put it in the movie. <laughs> it was a nice touch, but uh, for it kind of unfortunate to know, wait a minute, that wasn't in the book. That poem wasn't even written. <laughs> she can't be reading that at that time. But, uh, you know, we let it go. I have the same problem when I'm watching Westerns and I see them having improper cowboy gear on for the time in which they're in. They wouldn't add that. That that, bit didn't come into play till much later. (laughs) Most people miss those things, but well, sometimes it doesn't pay to know too much. Just enjoy the movie and shut up. But anyway, Samuel Taylor Caldridge, which was the father of the author of that poem, he kind of coined this term fancy, fancy and imagination, he saw fancy as a logical way of organizing sensory material without really synthesizing it and preferred imagination, which he defined as a spontaneous and original act of creation. So how does somebody have a spontaneous and original act of creation? Is there any such thing as an original act of creation? Well, it may be original to you, but there is nothing new under the sun. As we show the same problems that we're facing Rome. It's moved from a republic to an indirect democracy to a totalitarian dictatorship under a commander-in-chief, which is what emperor means, is the same path that we have been following in America. They also went down the road of socialism, free bread and circuses, which brought about the downfall of Rome. And I saw a statistic today that 70% of the millennials would vote for socialism or a socialist promoting candidate. So soon it appears, and then with the influx of so many people from South America that have never learned the lesson of socialism, I mean, many people in South America have learned that, and that they're against socialism, but a great many of the immigrants coming up to here today are coming not the way American immigrants came a 100 years ago, who came to save their money and work hard and develop their own families and their own business and their own independence. 
they're coming up because we have all these giveaway programs and we have a huge amount of socialists in government that are offering them all these giveaway programs enticing people to come up here because they're enticing voters. That's why they want to give them the vote, give illegal aliens. They're worried about foreign uh intervention in elections at the same time they want to give illegal aliens the right to vote that means uh that uh, the president of russia could come in here illegally and vote <laughs> and of course we actually have russians coming across the mexican border probably a third or more of the people coming across the border are not coming from mexico more than half are not coming from mexico but a third are not even coming from south america they're coming from all over the world they just get to Mexico and then they cross the border. And they want to get in here because we got all these Democrats giving them all this free stuff. Different motivation for immigration. And we're actually depleting some of those countries of people that they need. And what it is is the Democratic Party is trying to buy votes and, and bring those votes in. That's why they don't want to have ID. Now... I don't think there's any solution. You can certainly go and try your political solutions. I'm apolitical myself because I know the real solution is you have to change. Righteousness isn't a feeling or a fancy either. Uh, it, you, it is a, it is a way of life. Christ condemned the Pharisees because they were not attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Christ appointed a government to those men he called out, his church is called out. But it was a government that did not operate by exercising authority one over the other. It was a government that operated by love. But not a lot of that touchy-feely love that you hear about in most churches but actually a practical love, love that will tell you the truth, tell you you have no inheritance in the kingdom because you do this, 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 and this, and this. There's a huge long list that Paul mentions in his epistles about people who have no inheritance in the kingdom. Yet people think, well, I'm saved because I thought a thought. I was able to save myself because I thought a thought and I said, I accept Jesus in my heart as my personal Savior. I'm not doing what Jesus said. I'm actually doing contrary to what he said. I'm doing what Paul says makes me have no inheritance in the kingdom. But my preacher says I'm saved, so I'm going to go to that church and tithe him because he makes me feel really good. Those men are workers of iniquity. Those people are under a strong delusion. Those people will not be free. And when the system collapses, they will probably not survive. So, anyway... I've uh, presented some of what we're going to be talking about, and hopefully we'll present uh, more, but uh, I'm sure I've gone way past my break time. I'm supposed to take a break here, and uh, we'll see if we can do that, and we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Since we're running a little bit of short, and we had a little trouble getting on air to begin with this morning, the, so this idea of this different kind of love, people don't understand. One thing I have often said, about love is that it's a utility it's not a feeling it's not a fancy it's a utility it's actually power it's actually energy it heals it can actually heal flesh i've had bones broken and they've healed back in a matter of a day uh how in the world is that possible i've had i've had uh, injuries from automobile accidents where the doctors all said you're going to have to have skin grafts and you're going to have to have you know uh, bones, uh, probably bolted together, <laughs> all these kinds of things. 
30 days later, I was hauling pulp wood out of the woods by hand, uh, loading them on a dray. Uh, I had no skin grafts. As a matter of fact, within a week, the, there wasn't even a scab on what had been a burn that had cooked the muscle and taken away all the skin for at least three and a half to four inches around on my back. I mean, it just took the flesh off. There was no flesh. Flesh was back on the muffler where I was knocked unconscious. Had severe concussion. But I was up walking around and no scab. Uh, very sensitive skin there, but no scab whatsoever. It just poured liquid out of it, but no scab. How in the world? That was The doctor said it was impossible. My son uh, lost the tip of his finger in a mill accident. Uh, just before he changed jobs. Uh, and, uh, and he came back to the doctor to look at the finger. He said it was, it was not short of a miracle because the finger was back in place. I mean, it looks, I, you can hardly see a difference when you look at his hand. Uh, I mean, the nails there, everything. And it, it was gone. <laughs> but it's back. So how is that possible? You know, they look at it, they shake their head, they can't believe this. I'm telling you, Love is utility. But real love is. Philia love is not. Philia love is, you know, that's what animals do. It's And people do it too because we are part animal. And there's nothing less, again, nothing wrong with that filio love. You know, that friendship, that brotherhood and everything. It's a good thing. But it cannot be the governing thing. It's the same as the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's your brain. That your brain can remember facts and hold information and make decisions and calculate and operate logically. It can also operate illogically, which is the case of most people. But uh, it's full of facts and information and, and thoughts and ideas. That's not the tree of life. That's the tree of knowledge. When you eat of the tree of knowledge, you're going to lose your way. You're going to lose the way. You're not going to see the way. The tree of life, that's another thing. It's like the tree of knowledge. It follows a similar pattern. It's in you. You're the tree. That's what the blind man, remember what the blind man said after Christ healed him? And he hadn't ever even seen Christ yet because he didn't see until he went and washed his eyes out. But when he saw, he saw men like trees. We're the trees of the garden. You're the tree of knowledge and you're the tree of life. But you're eating of the tree of knowledge. The people who study the Bible and got all the tabs marked and all the underlining and everything, beware of that. If you're one of those people, beware of that. Because that's eating of the tree of knowledge. You're trying to read and get knowledge to get an edge. That's not what you want. Your edge must be the Holy Spirit. You don't control the Holy Spirit. You may control the amount of knowledge that comes in, the information that comes in. You can reject this, accept this. But that's not the Holy Spirit. You don't have any power over the Holy Spirit. It listeth where it will. But you can make a place in your heart for it. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, light comes in. Not that light that chinks comes through the chinks because you're in darkness. You don't see the tree of life now. You don't, you're not plugged into the tree of life. Nobody's been plugged into the tree of life since the garden. Unless, of course, they plug into the Holy Spirit. Well, you, you, where do you put the plug? I mean, how do you plug in? You, 
you have to let the Holy Spirit plug into you so it can write upon your heart and your mind. So what I'm going to tell you about is a lot of the things, and Paul, of course, told you about a lot of these things, that unplug you from the tree of life, keep you from plugging into the tree of life. Selfishness, unforgiveness. Uh, it's easy to forgive somebody you like who hasn't really harmed you. But can you forgive somebody who's tortured you, been mean to you, cruel to you? I mean, you know, uh, you know, the, the people were fascinated by a guy whose brother had been killed because an off-duty cop, I think she was an off-duty cop, came into his apartment by mistake. She thought she was coming into her apartment. She came into his apartment, saw him in there, thought he was a home invader, and shot him. And he was actually in his apartment. She was in the wrong apartment while she was being charged with murder. And, of course, his brother, who evidently lived across the hallway or something, came and and said that he forgives her, that he doesn't want to be angry with her and hate her. And he wants the best for her. I mean, she's going to go away to jail. I don't know how long she got. But he asked when he was on the witness stand, saying that he didn't want to see her punished that he had forgiven her and that he wanted to give her a hug and he gets up <laughs> in the courtroom. <laughs> it took everybody by such surprise. I mean, normally the bailiff would have stopped this going on. And he went up and he wanted to hug her. Well, that hugging is the philia love, but it was accompanied, I believe, in this my projection into the situation, it was accompanied by the agape or the filial love accompanied the agape, one or the other. And it had a profound effect on everybody's life. It changed people. It changed the flow of energy in the room. They they couldn't stop him. They couldn't control him. That, I mean, that would not be tolerated in most courtrooms, but they, they couldn't do anything about it. I've dealt with people in state capitals, in courtrooms, where people were full of anger and power and wanting to convict somebody. You know, it wasn't me. I was just there for those people. Uh, and in most cases, one case was a little bit different, and I've told about that, but you have to go get the recording of it and find it. But uh, the power of not being judgmental, not judging, not trying to assert my will over them, not angrily imposing, even in my imagination, my will upon them, but allowing God to take the floor. Had a tremendous power, completely incapacitated men who are, who make a living out of ordering people around. They couldn't do it. I've done this with police officers. And uh, I could say done it with cops, but I'm saying police officers. You know, that uh, it if you are really walking according to the way and in the spirit and loving not only those who love you, but even loving people you don't even know, even your enemies far away, you have power coming out of you, a light coming out of you that subdues the power that's in them, conquers the power that's in them. Probably don't believe that. But anyway, that's what we're talking about. How do you get to that state? Well, sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start caring about one another. We have ministers who who do that and they're 
they're, they have congregations, but the congregations are still caught in the rut of thinking about church as somewhere you go to do nice things. The church is where you go to take back your responsibility, which may be nice things, although some people, your responsibility may be to rebuke them, which is what Paul talks about, where he had been heavy and now he is coming light. And I made the joke, Paul light, as what he was in Second Corinthians. He He's trying to tell us something about the way. He's trying to describe to us how the way is allowing us to be changed. We're not changed so that now we have the power. We're changed so now we allow the power to pass through us. You know, Caldridge and them, they, they were thinking that poetry, you know, makes you think by connecting the same idea to both sides of your brain. That's kind of what, uh, although he didn't put it in those terms, I put it in those terms, but that was poetry. They they saw the evidence of poetry stimulating the consciousness and shaping the world in a way that we see the world through different eyes. Poetry could do that, and regular prose could not seem to do that. So there was a prevailing notion at that time of what they call the tabula rasa, that the, that we're kind of a blank sheet. I don't believe that we're born as a blank sheet. <laughs> I don't think at any time in our life we're a blank sheet. We, ha- sheet. we have all kinds of other influences coming into us. Traumas, uh, injuries, abuses, uh, these have a tremendous effect. But also, you can be traumatized with affection. Uh, over-affection, over-indulgence of your children can traumatize your conscience, your your natural spiritual conscience, which is actually what that natural spiritual conscience is different than your social conscience. It is coming to you from the tree of life. It is where you see the whole truth. We can't go back there, like I said, in the garden We don't go back to the garden, not because God is keeping us out, because the light that is there is keeping us out. We were hiding from the moment we did wrong and tried to decide for ourselves what was good and evil. We can see what is good and evil if we see through the eyes of the tree of life. When we try to intellectualize it out, we get into trouble. So, you know, Caldridge is thinking that logic organizes material uh, so that we can deal with it, but it does not create. He thinks that this imagination is what creates. But if that imagination is plugged into the tree of life, there's no end to what you can create. There's uh, the inventions. You know, a lot of the great inventions that we see coming out of America during our own renaissance was coming out because we had this, back in those days when America was supposedly great, yeah, there was slavery around, but there was... And there was some taxes around and there was um, even some ideas of socialism early on in the 1800s. But the entrepreneurship and taking care of one another, people weren't dying in the streets. People weren't being left in the gutter as you see in parts of Europe and England or dying along the roadside, uh, roadsides as you saw during the potato famine in Ireland where people... You know, their their mouths were foaming with green foam because they had been eating grass. There was nothing to eat. And nobody cared. Nobody did anything about it. That didn't happen in America. It did happen in the very early days of uh, the Pilgrims and uh, Jamestown. 
But they suddenly decided, if you don't work, you don't eat. What you produce is yours. They recognized private property. They they returned to you the means of production. Your labor was the... You know, I give you a gigantic farm with all kinds of fertile land and and you, where you can plant crops and all this stuff. Nothing is going to be of value is going to turn into a jungle without your labor. Your labor is the means of production. That's the real means of production. If you don't have a right to your labor... You, you, you will fall apart as a society. You will fall apart and degenerate into perfect savages. If you don't have a right to your labor because you wanted a right to your neighbor's labor, which is what socialism is all about, you will destroy society. Young people growing up, they don't know that. Of course, they all went to public school, which is a socialist institution. It's in the Communist Manifesto, public education. We, back in the 1850s, nobody, hardly anybody went to public schools, and most public schools were financed by uh, private donations, not by government taxation. The original Jefferson, when he wanted public schools, he wanted the militia to build it. Well, the militia is a voluntary group. They're not paid. The militia was going to build the schools. It wasn't tax dollars. It was the people coming together and building. He wanted one in every ward and and it would be financed by the people's donation, not by tax dollars. He was just wanted a bill passed that would say that the people had the right to do that and they could do it on land that would be set aside and not belong to anybody. It would be public land. And uh, But the people had to build the building. The people had to hire the teacher. The people had to decide the curriculum in every local ward. And that's his idea of public schools, not like what we have today. And people are trying to get by back to that to some degree by getting the federal government out of education. That's a big move now with Trump and uh, and uh, the, his the leading lady in uh, education. I forgot what her name is, but uh, she's a bit of a pistol. She's a very outspoken woman. But that's not going to get you there if you simply put public education back in the hands of the individual states. Uh, education should be the hands of the parents who have produced the children. But anyway, the faculty of this imagination is, is itself divided into two parts, according to Coleridge. A primary imagination is what we all share. It is the basic faculty that allows us to make sense out of the world and give it meaning. Well, that doesn't work with everybody. Because <laughs> a lot of people don't want to see the truth. They don't want to even see a part of the truth, much less the whole truth. But then he had this secondary imagination that he derived from the primary imagination. But it is conscious. It is this imagination. It is your consciousness. Well, what is consciousness but a gift from God? Most people, when you're running from the truth about yourself... Hiding from the truth about yourself, which we see Adam and Eve doing in the garden. And we see everybody. We see our neighbors. They just don't want to, I don't want to talk about that. You know, uh, I'll deal with that some other time. Because they, it, you know, don't bring that up. Because it's a painful subject kind of thing. They don't want to be conscious of that. I know people who smoke, who chew tobacco, some drink. And they say, well, it helps me cope. No, it helps you not cope. You don't want to cope with what you're seeing and feeling and understanding. So you want to drown out your consciousness. You want to kill your consciousness with those 
stimulations that uh, are suicide that uh, Coldridge was talking about and Ogden Ash was talking about. So we end up with these uh, different ideas about consciousness. There was a thing where uh, romanticism was was an artistic, literary, musical, intellectual movement that was taking place back in the 18th, well, at the end of the 18th century and 1800 to about 1850. And this romanticism rejected rationalism, this logic, and religious intellect, the religious intellect. Well, what's the religious intellect? We talked this morning about religion being how you take care of the needy of society. It's and But the religious intellect, that's all the doctrines and dogmas. And Romanticism was rejecting that. But we're not going to have time to get all the way into this. But it was actually in opposition to Calvinism, which we'll just have. That opens up another whole can of worms. But we'll continue this maybe next week on this channel or this station. Or we'll do it some other way. But uh, stay tuned. Join the network and we'll show you the way. Back to freedom. That's what Moses did, freed the people. That's what Jesus did. But he freed them so that they were able to survive. And that's what you're going to need to do. Anyway, until then, peace on your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.